There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Miner. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action this week is Mr. Kirk Johnson, the founder, founding director and teaching artist with Sounds Academy, an organization giving instruments and weekly musical instruction to students. Kirk, we are excited to have you on. How are you today? I'm good and great. How are you guys doing? We are doing well. Appreciate you coming on. So, Centauri, I I think we've probably covered this before, but were you musical? Did did you ever play any instruments? So, this will be... I'm so excited to have Kirk on because (laughs) I was not... Well, I played clarinet for like three or four years when I was younger, but I wasn't like particularly good at it. Um, But about two summers ago, I had this idea to learn the violin, and Mr. Johnson here was my teacher, who was very patient, but it was very clear, like, two months in, that it was just not going to work out. I wasn't a very good student. Oh, he did well. Okay, well, that's nice. He did play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. (laughs) Thank you for that, Kirk. Got it. So, so Kirk, um, on a scale of, well, I don't know the best way to ask this question. I don't think you should ask this question. (laughs) Is it more frustrating to try to teach an adult the violin or, or, or a child? Oh, definitely an adult, okay. but child. But that's just because child are under the guidance and beckon of adults. Adults are kind of responsible for themselves. Mm. Um, but all you you have great adult students. You have great young students. You have not so great adult students. You have not so great young students. But they all do well at their own pace. I think that's the important part: knowing what their pace is and guiding them through their pace. Got it. Well, I very much appreciate that. So, it, it, I think it's always it's, it's always awesome to to get a chance to talk to people that have reached a, a I don't want to call it mastery necessarily, but you've obviously uh, become very 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 good musically. So, do you find it's more challenging to have learned to play an instrument yourself, or is it more challenging to learn how to be an effective teacher? I would say myself but that's because i'm harder on myself than anybody else could be and so therefore the things that i wanted to do i would go above and beyond to make sure that those things happen got it appreciate that very much and again he was an amazing teacher i was just a terrible student (laughs) (laughs) fair enough fair enough so kirk um Walk us through when you became passionate about music and sort of how you found your way to to launching this 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 incredible nonprofit. I think that I was passionate about music from early childhood ages. I think a lot of kids, if not all kids, are passionate about music at that age. It just so happens that it was cultivated within me. So within first grade, I was given the opportunity to play music in a music program. I did classes with the music program. I learned how to play an instrument, group classes, theory, things like that. And this was all in Boston. So I'm originally from Boston, did a lot of things through a group called Project Set. That led to Indiana University where I was able to audition and get into a college 
and learn how to play even better. And I guess I should also mention that when I was playing in Boston, it was a very rigorous program. So there's a lot of practicing. I participated in a touring orchestra. So by the time I was 14, 15, I had my first international tour of Italy. And it was just like every year or every other year you were going to another country to play nice. music for those people. Uh, carried that same passion into college, and then that's when I was introduced to what they call pedagogy, so or pedagogy. So with pedagogy, to me, it's not just learning how to teach, but learning the science behind that teaching. So why do people teach what they teach? And I was able to develop a music program in Indiana while doing my grad degree. Had fun with that, and then that led me to Phoenix, Arizona, where I wanted to develop another music program. When I was, I came to Phoenix through Teach for America. I was able to teach in South Phoenix, taught K through eight music education, and developed some cool programs, after-school programs, choirs, bands, things like that for kids to participate in. Uh, I then went to Houston, Texas, to do some similar work, uh, more with conducting youth orchestras. And when I left, I thought that the program that I had left in the school system was a good one. I thought that it would just be sustainable because the one that I did in Indiana, it was sustainable as well. Due to things such as Facebook, you can see what is happening. People, old teachers, old students are communicating with you. And that's when I decided after about two or three years in Texas that I wanted to come back to Phoenix and redo the music program that I had done out here in Phoenix. And then now the new music program is Sounds Academy. And we've been going since 2014. Kirk, can you, um, thanks for sharing that. I'm always fascinated in uh, disclaimer, I've been able to spend a lot of time with Kirk over the years, so I know a lot of this uh, history. But one of the things that's been really interesting about Sounds Academy is the problem you're attacking is that when I was a kiddo, I remember having a robust music education, like everyone just played an instrument and you had choir and you had band and that was just kind of part of your day. But that's no longer the case, right? right? Like schools no longer have that as their thing. Right. And, and a big part of that, too, is where do you happen to grow up? Where do you happen to go to school? Which, once again, a child does not choose where they want to grow up or where they want to go to school. Right. So to me, it's unfortunate that, hey, just because I grew up in this neighborhood, I can't play an instrument. And it's not about creating these professional musicians or it's not about creating the next Mozart or John Legend or anything like that. It's more so about they just had the opportunity to do it. And when you have the opportunity to do certain things, it opens up your eyes to different levels of things. And then also compare that to, you know, you cross-reference in your head. Well, if I was able to do this, then I can do this. And a big thing with me and music and the things that we teach kids, something that I started to notice with students, if you can learn how to be excellent at something, you can learn how to be excellent at a bunch of things. And music is one of those things where you have to work at it. You get to a certain point where you have to put in some time, you have to put in some work. You're going to have to get over a hump. You're going to have to conquer something that was difficult, but then after you conquer it, you're like, this is easy. So I just take the same application of breaking it down into sections, practicing it every day. And I look at a math problem or I look at the science thing and I'm like, this is difficult. But if I apply the same thing that I did when I was playing the piano, I can do the same thing here 
when I'm doing my science project. And what a powerful thing, right? That's as you were telling your story about how you got the opportunity to go to Italy and every other year to travel to different places. And then you joined Teach for America and you went to Houston and then you decided to come back to Arizona. Um, talking about how music gave you the opportunity to excel and to realize that if you put your mind to something, what, what kind of came to mind was the idea of just agency and helping to build that agency and that whatever I set my mind to do, then I can really do it. And that really resonated for me because for me, it wasn't music. It, 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 it was tennis. I became a really good tennis player and I got to go and have right. a scholarship and all these things. So I think it's such a valuable thing, what you're talking about. And if you can give that to a young person, you really could change their life. Yeah, definitely. And like we've seen it. Like we've seen certain students, for example. So something about Sounds Academy is when we first started, it was to work with individual students and it was to basically give ch children the opportunity to play an instrument at a higher level. That then grew to getting groups of kids. That then grew to just letting them see a concert, and, but not beyond seeing the concert, but learning the different occupations that come together to make that concert happen. Because for the most part, there's only one person on the stage, but there's a hundred people behind them. You got their booking manager, you got the stage manager, you got the light crew, you got the staging. So showing kids that part of it, not just going to the concert to watch it. So with our students, we've seen them say, hey, I like doing this. I'm not going to go to college. And then all of a sudden, we started realizing that we were changing the mindset of children. And then they started getting scholarships to get into college. So all our kids are graduating. All of them are going to college. And it's not because we're like, you must go to college, but it's just they're changing their own mindset and they want to keep going. They want to accelerate what they're doing. And not just music, but we have students that are doing psychology majors, business majors. Uh, we have music education majors as well. I love it. I, you're you're giving them the tools necessary to to succeed in, in, in really whatever field that they're interested in. So what what an incredible right. thing. So 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 how how does the program actually work? Because I mean it's it's great with technology that we can go on YouTube and I, I can watch videos and all this stuff, but I don't actually have the instrument. So I, I, I guess right, that's right. probably an important part of it. So we do a lot of what we call instrument petting zoos. The children go to the instrument petting zoos. They try the instruments, at which point they say they want to try to do lessons on this. When they sign up, when their parents sign up on our website or at our instrument petting zoos, we, and they get in, then we're able to give them an instrument, a teacher, uh, books, lessons, classes. So we have some programs. We have different programs. So that musical, I'm um, oh, sorry, that instrument petting zoo is part of our musical access program. And then we have our school program, which means there are certain schools that we're in where kids are learning the fundamentals in small group settings. And then we also have programs we call our solo program where kids are doing one-on-one -on -one lessons. So it just depends on which one you want to do on how you go about doing it. And then we also have different instruments. So we have piano, we have violin, viola, cello, we have guitar. So we have, especially in the West Valley, there's a lot of piano students that we have. And we're able to do, due to our partnership with Australia Mountain Community College, we're able to do group settings. And then we're able to do one-on-one -on -one lessons as well. So students, they get everything you would need 
in order to get a sound music education. Nice. So what are the factors that, that, that make a program like this sustainable? Obviously having money, but is it having a bank yeah. of instruments? <laughs> it, it's having a, a bank of volunteers and continue to grow that. It's working with co- or the working with the schools. Yeah, I, I would say the number one thing are the teachers. So if you have teachers, if you have the people, um, teachers and admin staff, board members, so those people that are passionate about what you're trying to do and patient with it as well. Because something that you learn about when you're doing this is that it's not overnight success. And the way that you used to do things, when we, when we first started, we had about 10 kids. And now we have meaning 10 kids, the whole thing that did uh, anything that we did with music education. Now we have 4,300 what wow. we do with music education. And then of that 4,300, 300 of them are every week, about three hours, four hours a week. Well, three to five hours a week, I should say. So they're doing lessons, they're doing group rehearsals, they're doing orchestras. So, and I mentioned that to say this, the way that you communicated with 10 students is not the same way that you communicate with 4,300 students. Can't imagine. So that's what I mean by the patient part. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't text that many times. So <laughs> you have to be patient with, like, how are we going to do um, these communication things? How do we communicate concerts, scheduling concerts? How do you schedule 300 kids to perform on various days? Because we have 10 locations between Mesa and Goodyear. So then you need to have your admin team that are able to schedule those things and then make sure that the correct piano, the correct um, concert programs are at the correct locations when they need to be. And then the teachers have to prepare those students because, as you can imagine, playing on the stage is scary for some people. For sure. And the cool thing about it is when you do it once, and that's something I used to remember when I was playing. I used to think that playing was such fun when I was five. It was just, it was a time that I got to dress up and wear my fancy clothes and play this <laughs> concert. And then it didn't get nerve-wracking until about middle school. So there's something you start to care and you start to judge yourself a little bit more. And we always tell students, the reason why you do get nervous is because you care, which means if you didn't get nervous, now we need to have a discussion. Right. Um, but yeah, like what, having all those components come together is very important. And I often have this um, image that I show whenever I have meetings with, whether it be our board, whether it be um, donors, whether it be our parents. And it kind of shows the different components that make up this Sounds Academy man. So it's like this hero that we created. And the face of the hero are the children. So the children aren't supposed to do anything except for practice and try and be honest with us and let us know how we can best support them but we need the teachers to do what they're supposed to do. We need our volunteers. We need our supporters. We need all those things, the time, talent, treasure, so that we can support these students to be the best that they can be. Kirk, I'd love your thoughts, and and we've talked about this quite a bit. How do you, you, at the end of the day, run a very successful organization, but your background is as a musician. How did you learn the skills, or how does the transition from musician to business owner, organization operator, how was that? It, that? That's a good question because it's always, 
I think that being a teacher, being a musician, part of you is already an entrepreneur. You just don't know business terms. And that's how I felt when I was doing this. Then I got into design thinking and seed spot. So when I did seed spot, I started learning the different terms. But I was, I guess you could say I was behind because I started doing this when I was about 30. Yeah, 30, 31. Um, how am I going to figure out these things? How do I figure out how to put it with a board? How do I figure out how to raise money, write a budget, things like that? So when it comes down to it, it was just a lot of studying. And I often say that Sounds Academy is my dissertation. So if I were to ever get a doctorate, this would be it. And I'd have to study all the time to keep up with the business terminology. And every year there's something new. So, for example, right now I'm learning about capacity building, which if you ask me anything about capacity building last year, I wouldn't be able to tell you anything. But now I see the growth and development of organizations and I also study other organizations as well to figure out, all right, so this organization's in this stage and now we're in this stage and you just change your mind frame so that you can continue learning. And I enjoy learning too. So I guess that's the other good thing about it. Probably an essential thing. So I appreciate that very yeah. much. <laughs> so you've, 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 you've grown this to, to 4,300 total kids. Um, do you have a, 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 a terminal number in mind or a, a, a goal? So, okay, that's a good question because we, the goal, I often say as goals get completed, new goals come up. Sure. And I think of someone like LeBron James where I heard him, I think it was two years ago, he said that he wanted to own a team. And I thought that was impressive because I'm sure if you asked him when he was 16, what do you want to do? He told you, I wanted to be in the NBA. And then after you got to the NBA, it's like, I want to be MVP. And after he was MVP, I want to win a championship. So for us, the goal, the goal was to get to 4,000 kids. And now that we've gotten to 4,000 kids in four or five years, it became, no, we can actually do better at this. And we can actually, you got breath versus depth when it comes to how much you interact with the kids. And something that's very unique about what we do is enough cannot be said for a long life mentor. And when I say that, I'm speaking of the individual that, like Big Brothers Big Sisters is kind of big for this, where in theory you can have a mentor from like fifth grade to 12th, and that person is just showing you new things. So we want to get more on the depth level with our students, especially those students in the solo program where we have individuals, teachers, mentors that are with them for an extended period of time to see them elevate and go way and beyond what they thought they could. And another thing um, with goals that we have now is diversifying stages, which our students perform on. And so that means that if we're going to Symphony Hall, if you're going to Mesa Art Center, then, and you watch orchestras, let's say, like having the stage, just imagine having the stage look like what the population of Arizona is. So right now we don't have that at all. But I think that if we can continue targeting the areas which we are targeting, working with the students and the families, which we are, 
then it will work. And it's not something that happens overnight, but you keep doing it. Like we have some amazing kids. We have amazing families where these kids are going to be playing. We already have kids now in the Phoenix Youth Symphony. And so we know that we're just going to continue getting these kids into the Phoenix Youth Symphony, which will in turn diversify the stages that we're going to see these kids perform on. Got it. Nice. I love it. So just sort of a, a, I think it's a really, really important question, but talking about this idea of if you can learn how to be excellent at one thing, then you can learn how to be excellent at many things. Do you think that every kid has that in them? Oh, yeah. Like I, I, I think it's like Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, where it becomes, I guess if you think of it as like you're playing Street Fighter or something or any type of video game, and your character is supposed to have strength, quickness, um, speed, whatever. But then I kind of see humans in that same way where some humans are super good at space, like they can tell how far away things are, and, but they're not so great at like um, art type things. So they're not able to hear notes in the same way that other people. But if you start to develop these things at a young age, you start to see how humans can have multiple intelligences at high levels. So I've seen students, for example, one of the first students I ever taught, he was the youngest of five brothers, and he was a big boy. Like he ended up playing basketball at Illinois University, I want to say. But he, knew, he understood sports. He understood school. He understood music. Like he was just, he just did all of it. And I would say that for myself too, like I did wrestling growing up in high school, but it's because no one said, I think that when you tell a child, for example, this is what you are good at and you are not good at these other things, you start to believe it. Like adults do that. Like there are people, you can affect their self-esteem by just telling them that they're not good at something. And then they start to believe it. But if we have this world where you're telling people, no, you're good at this, you're good at that, you're good at everything, you're good at whatever you want to be good at, and you're going to have those days where you don't think you're good at things, but you have somebody that's telling you, no, yes, you are, that's how you start to get that life of, I'm good at multiple things. Kirk, it's it's timely that you say that we had um, Jared Cohen in town uh, he's CEO of Google, oh, yeah. uh, Google, Google Jigsaw, and he was talking about it's strange to him that once you know, students enter university, they have to choose between, like, I can either be an engineer or I can be a historian. But if you're good at both, why can't you pursue both? But the, we're just not, our, our society is not equipped to encourage young, young individuals to do anything but that one thing that it's either going to make a lot of money or that they seem to have a really big proficiency at. But Ideally, we can have multiple interests as people, and we should be able to pursue those interests. So I'm glad that you said that. Right. And I, and I can think of, I remember one of, the, one of the first people I met when I went to Indiana University, uh, one of my friends, Lorenzo, he was a double major, double minor. And I remember being like, oh, I thought you could only do one. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I ended up doing sociology as well because I, I like sociology. And, like, this guy is um, – he, he works for IBM in Atlanta, but like he's, he's like one of the youngest uh, people that are up, like directors, presidents, things like that. Um, and then when I think of SRP, one of their 
senior directors. She actually did flute performance, I want to say, at NAU. So I think point being that when you look at these people that are what we consider to be highly successful in that they have leadership roles and leadership positions in their companies, they did multiple things. So therefore, let's let everyone do multiple things. Love that. Yeah, I like it. Centauri, you should email your buddy at Google and let him know that it's possible to do, to do double majors. It sounds like maybe he doesn't realize right. that. <laughs> he does realize it. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Well, excellent. Well, Kirk, one of the questions we love asking people are, uh, I think that you've been at this now for, for six years or so. Uh, what are some of the top things, maybe the top three things that you've learned over the past three years? Uh, some of the things I've learned, I would say you got to be flexible and you got to be willing to learn, be a sponge with it. And I remember um, Steve Spark, Courtney, would talk about the 80-20 rule, which is listen 80% of the time and talk 20% of the time. And so when I go into situations where I'm asking questions or situations where I'm trying to learn, it's just me taking notes. And I write down everything, which the way that my brain works, I need to write down. If I don't write down, I forget. Um, so that'd be one of those things to keep learning. Um, work-life balance. That's another important thing. So when I look at people that get burnt out, it's because of that work-life balance. So I try to make it a point where it's, yes, I do a lot. And yes, I am always quote unquote busy, but I don't know who isn't busy nowadays. But the question is busy with what? So then I could be busy on Instagram or I can be busy listening to podcasts. I could be busy going on a hike and I could be busy just checking my email all day because I've learned that email never ends. It's like a bad game of Tetris. Then <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say last but not least is you can't make everybody happy. So it's a matter of, so this one is kind of twofold. So it's like, you can't make everybody happy, but then surrounding yourself around people or individuals who are not only smarter than you, but they're open-minded like you are and have your best interests in mind so that you can continue to develop and then you learn how to make yourself happy, which then you can make more people happy. So even though you might not be able to get 100%, getting 98 is still pretty good. So yeah, surrounding yourself by those smart people that can make you realize things like that is very, very good. It is important to always be learning and be flexible. We are striving for that work-life balance and not busying ourselves with unimportant things and making sure that we are surrounded with smart people. I think those are excellent. Thank you so much. And finally, finally, sir, if you could make one plea, knowing that the entire world would hear it, what would that one plea be? I I would say, so I kind of have, I kind of think of that in terms of collectively and then like individually. So collectively... I think of when I see children, when I see individuals, I think that we have to motivate and encourage each other and not crush the confidence or creativity 
of young people because they only when, when you look at certain vocalists for example or certain singers what makes them a great singer is the fact that they have the confidence that in their brain they really think they can sing regardless of you if you think it or not like the person in their corner thinks that they can sing and through time it will develop where they can sing um and then supporting uh, organizations, not just Sounds Academy, but any type of arts organizations, local artists, local art venues, so that we can continue to motivate and continue to encourage each other. Because I think that's something that's great about Phoenix, Arizona, is that it's a growing environment. And I think that we can continue to do great things. And when I think of where Sounds Academy falls and all that, I think 20 years 30 years from now, when we're talking to other people and they're saying, yeah, I remember when I first moved here, Phoenix was a cultural desert. I used to hear the term cultural desert when I first moved here. But now it's not so much a cultural desert. And then the kid is going to ask you, like, what did you do? So do you want to be the person that's like, I just complained about it all day and do nothing? Or (laughs) I supported organizations like Science Academy, and that's why all kids can do music in their schools now. So like be on the right side of history. Love that. No doubt about it. I think that that's great. Excellent. Well, Kirk, it's been awesome learning about the organization. I'm confident when I see you in five years, 10 years, 20 years, and 30 years, uh, I'll be congratulating you on, on not only just how many students have been in there, but also the depth of the program and how you've been able to help all those kids just achieve whether it's music or whatever that they're really working on on achieving. So I think it's exciting. Um, how can people get involved? Uh, well, you could visit our website, www.soundsacademy.org. That's S-O-U-N-D-S, academy.org. And then that's the same with our um, Instagram, Facebook. It's all Sounds Academy. And right now even we have we have some exciting things going on. We have a We have March Madness ourselves where we're actually raising money right now so that we are able to do a program with Grand Canyon University where kids will be able to take piano classes on a college campus. So that's our next big thing that we're going to be rolling out here uh, next fall during that school year. Nice. And then we're also going to be having a concert on March 31st at the Central Methodist Church on Missourian Central. And then our final concert of the year will be on May 18th at Arizona Opera at 12.30 on May 18th. A lot of fun things coming up. Yeah, it's going to be great. We're collaborating with some local musicians on that one. So a lot of surprises happening on that May 18th concert. Awesome. So folks that, uh, folks that, that have kids, or if you're a young person who's listening, or if you have young kids or if you are somebody that has musical talent and you want to give back, they can find opportunities on the website for getting involved in all those different areas? Yep, definitely. So when it comes to, like, like I said, we're always looking for great people. So whether those people are people that want to teach, people that want to do board things, like join our board, people that want to give guidance, people that want to donate. So like the whole gamut um, can be found on that website, www.soundsacademy.org. Awesome. Centauri, what else? No, that was great. Kurt, I'm just, uh, I'm thankful that you are doing this work and the more and more that I'm meeting, um, 
you know, as you put higher up CEOs, the more and more I hear about this case for arts and culture and the humanities and how absolutely necessary it is for kids to grow up with that, um, kids to be engaged with it, because ultimately it will only help them in the long term. And I don't think many people uh, realize how impactful arts education can be. So thanks for doing the work. Oh, thanks. And then, oh, so one last thing, too. You just sparked something in my brain there. When So something I like to notice, too, and I think I noticed it with Hidden Figures. I don't know if you remember that movie or saw that movie. But there are a lot of things when we talk about innovation where, essentially speaking, you have to, you're doing something that's already been done, but you're just finding your outside-of-the-box way of doing it. So even when you talk about, like, Google, we already had encyclopedias. But it took someone to be like, well, what if you just put it on the web and like make it all connect and such? And music is kind of this thing where you learn that. You can learn how to play an E, but there are so many different ways to learn how to play an E that when you start to think outside the box and you have the liberty to think outside the box and do it, it starts to translate to kids' science projects even. And that's just something that we've seen them do. And I do think that that is part of that innovation thing that arts just intrinsically teaches that you can do what you want to do as long as this is the outcome that happens. I love it. That is well said. Well, thank you again, Kirk. Oh, thank you guys. It was wonderful speaking with you and be on your podcast. Excellent. Well, until next time, everyone, keep questioning because the struggle is real. On behalf of Centauri and I, thanks as always for listening. Please subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and feel free to share the show on social media. Thanks a lot.